All right. I've got the old podium up here today, which means that I'm worried that I'm going to go long if I don't stay in my notes. And so you're warned. Um, I also need to disclaim to you that this sermon was, was really, um, has been kind of in the works uh, to some extent for uh, several weeks. We've been headed in this direction. Um, and so if it feels like at different points in this sermon that I'm reacting to events of the past couple days or the last week, uh, know that it wasn't my intention to do that. I'm not hot topic preacher guy generally. Uh, but what I think you'll find is that some of the, uh, the sermon today might be more timely um, than I anticipated when I, I wrote this sermon. Last week we started uh, a series on God's faithful presence. Uh, I'm thinking about what it means to be experiencing God's presence in the world and not only experiencing it and coming into God's presence, but recognizing that we are called as disciples of Jesus to become God's presence in the world. And that this isn't just a, a, a habit of, of being, that, that it really is this powerful transformation, radical act of being so different in the world that we bring God's presence into places where God's presence desperately needs to be. Um, as we get into this series, one of the things that we're going to do, and we're going to be doing this for several more weeks, uh, really over a month, talking about actual practices where the church can become the presence of God and allow the world to experience God through interacting with us and being around us as the disciples of Jesus. It's a different way of thinking about things, because for so often the church has tried to gain power and change the world uh, through strength, through power, through wielding uh, all the influence that it has available to us. The last week we went through scriptures, beginning with some that talked about the creation, moving through some that talk about the new creation, to show that the biggest question in scripture is not, can I be saved? The biggest question in scripture, over and over again, is asking, can God live among his people? Can we live in the presence of God? And through the Old Testament, it's being asked in so many different ways in God, with God's people Israel. Can God dwell in the presence of his people? And can his people willingly live in the presence of God? And then if you, as you begin living in God's presence, you begin to embody God's presence in the world. So Israel's job was to live in such a way that all the nations of the earth would see God dwelling in them and through them so that they can encounter God through his people Israel. And as we move into the New Testament, we see uh, that that question is still being asked. Can God dwell among his people? And the answer changes in the resurrection. The answer changes after D Jesus gets out of the tomb and says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you so that the Spirit can come and live in you and among you. And the Spirit lives in us as individuals, and the Spirit lives among us as the church. And if that's true, that the Spirit is now in us, then the resurrection's answer to the question, can God dwell among his people? The answer, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is a resounding yes. God's presence can dwell in us. And so it begins to answer this question of can God dwell among us and then ask the question, can we become now the presence of God in the world? Because the world needs to encounter God through the church and through disciples in Jesus. 
And when we read the Sermon on the Mount, it begins casting this vision of a kingdom that Jesus puts out there, a vision of a kingdom that is not trying to wield power and influence, but a kingdom that is rooted in a new way of becoming a disciple of Jesus, that we become the kingdom and we become transformed people. And last week I said that one of the keys to understanding and unlocking all of the mysteries and the truths in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7 through 7, is that you can draw a circle around your feet. And once you've drawn that circle around your feet, if you start working on transforming everything in that circle, that's your job. It's your job to be in charge of what's in that circle. God has given you free will and the ability to be in charge of yourself and choosing. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That's my circle. But so often what we do is we draw this circle around our feet and we spend all of our energy focused on on fixing what's not in the circle. We worry about the world and we worry about uh, other people and we worry about the decisions that others are making in culture and media and all the things that are out there. And, and we go to God and we say, God, I'm sick of the world. I want to fix it. I want it to look more like your kingdom now. And, and I want to fix that. And if you do that, it gets you in all kinds of trouble. And so what Jesus kind of says in the Sermon on the Mount is, listen, you fix what's in this circle and God's going to take care of the rest. And so the question is, do you trust God to take care of what's outside of the circle? Because God trusts you to worry about what's in the circle. And when we start ordering that correctly, we begin living and becoming in such a way that that we become the presence of God in the world. It rightly orients us as kingdom people. When we try to fix what's outside of the circle without working what's inside, we talked about this last week. If you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. I developed this much more. But if you start worrying all the time about what's outside of the circle and you're not focused on what's inside of the circle, you will become judgmental. You just will. And judgmental Christians generally respond in one of two ways. You either go into a fortress that says the world is evil and so I won't interact with it. I'll just keep it on the outside and we build up really big walls and we go inside of our walls and we say, whew, so glad the world doesn't come in here because the world is gross and I'm good. Or we do the other thing, which is instead of building up a fortress, we go on attack and we just go pour our anger and vitriol and judgmentalism all over a world that's really not that interested in it. We act like we're doing it all in the name of the kingdom. We become judgmental. But when we do the alternative, when we decide to ignore the problems that are outside of the circle and we ignore the problems inside of the circle, then we do one of two things. We either begin to assimilate with the world. We go and look at the world and we say, listen, I'm not worried about the world. I just kind of want to exist without causing any troubles. Uh, So I will transform myself to be like the world. Even if the world says that good is bad and bad is good, I'm fine with that. I don't want to cause any trouble, so I'll just assimilate. Or we distract ourselves. We withdraw through disinterest, distraction, or the endless pursuit of pleasure. And we allow those things to keep us from having to worry about the world because we're just having a good time in our little circle. It's all fine and hunky-dory in here, so I don't have to worry about what's, what's out there. And now none of those responses match with how God is calling us to live in the world as Christians and disciples of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus, in his sermon, suggests a different way, a way of being salt and light. When we become salt and light, we become transformed people, contagiously shaped by the Spirit dwelling within us as we seek to be the transforming presence of God in our sin-sick, broken world. That becomes the purpose of Christianity. And it's not about salvation. That's part of it that gets us into the game. But once we're in the game, we become transformed transformers, being the presence of God in the world. And I need to tell you, we, the church has spent so much kingdom energy, so much kingdom energy, trying to force the world back into God's image. And let me tell you what I mean by that. What I mean by that is this. I want you to imagine for a minute that I came up with this really great new evangelism program, personal evangelism. Uh, we're going to save one person at a time. It's personal. It's one-on-one. I'm not the biggest guy in the world. But I'm bigger than at least the older people, the younger people, and some of the weak and sick ones. And so that's where I'm going to start my ministry, this new evangelism program. All right, you with me? So I'm going to go up to people and I'm going to ask them, do you want to be baptized into Jesus Christ? And some of them might say yes. And I'll be like, great, let's talk about it. Let's get you immersed in the water. And some of them are going to say no. And if I'm stronger than them, here's my plan. I'm going to grab them, drag them to the closest pool of water, dunk them, hold them down long enough to say, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins. Bring them up and go, congratulations, you're saved. I've done it. Is that a good plan? It sounds kind of fun. It's at least interesting. I'll probably get arrested, and then I can open a prison ministry. And now I'm really not the strongest guy, and it's a really bad plan, okay? So... So we're not going to do that. We all get that that's absurd. And yet when we look at how the church is trying to transform our world, isn't it a lot like that? Isn't the church at times trying to figure out where it can get enough power and influence to take the world and force it under the water and bring it up and say, now you're in God's image, whether you want to be or not. We're doing that. We're using so much kingdom energy trying to use power to change the world. And yet, what if we actually looked at this New Testament way of being transformed transformers that aren't trying to do it by power, that are instead trying to realize that there's a New Testament way of becoming the presence of God. And it only happens by the grace of Jesus Christ, of his sacrifice on the cross, and it only happens by the work of God's Spirit dwelling in us. Because if we have God's presence, we can then begin to become God's presence. I want to look a little bit at what this might start to look like if we understand it. And I want to look at four passages, and they come from four of the most influential uh, contributors that we have, four of the most influ influential uh, thought leaders of the New Testament. And the first one, of course, has to be Jesus. And it's the passage we looked at last week and I've already referenced. And I want to look at it again to start today. At the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, right after the Beatitudes, here's what Jesus says. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Every time you hear a Christian in the next week and month and years say, I'm just sick and tired of the way that the world treats Christians. You need to tell them, 
then you have reason to rejoice. I'm sick and tired that we don't have the position of power and influence that I think Christians deserve. Jesus said you don't deserve it, you shouldn't expect it, and you should celebrate because you've now got a place with the kingdom of Christ past, present, and future. Persecution and the world not liking us is built into the job description. And so we've got to quit being so mad when it doesn't work that way. Well, if I can't just be mad and try and get everything that I want by having popularity and fame and honor and power, how do I do it, Jesus? You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. If we can become salt and light, and salt and light are, are change agents. You don't put salt on something and go, eh, it tastes the same. It tastes salty. It changes what it comes in contact with. You don't turn on a light and go, man, it's still dark in here. You turn on a light and the room becomes light. The, these are things that are in their very nature changing what is around them. They're agents of change. And, and this is so important. When I was a teenager, one of my favorite little jokes, I was a nerd then, I'm still a nerd now, um, was I'd you know, be at a restaurant and I'd pour a little bit of salt in my hand. And I thought it was real funny to just take that salt and throw it at the person across the table. And they'd go, what are you doing? And I'd say, you've been assaulted. <laughs> thought it was a good joke. Some of you think so, some of you don't. It's one of the jokes I make in my sermon. I get in the car and my kids go, it wasn't funny. They were laughing at you, not with you. It's probably, probably right. And when he says be light, he doesn't mean be a lightsaber. Okay? He doesn't mean be like a laser beam that is using light to, to harm people and to be a weapon. We think of the way that Christians should force God's will in the world is all too often with powerful weapons of influence. Forcing people under the water so that culture could come up and be like God wants it to be. And we go, ha, you've been assaulted. But that's not the kind of salt and light Jesus is calling us to be. He wants us to be a different kind of transformational presence that doesn't do it by force. When we become persecuted, we should celebrate because it brings us in, into unity with the kingdom of God. We should be a light among the world that's not hidden under a bowl so that our deeds may cause the world to glorify God. Yeah. Just by being the transformational presence of God, the world will give God glory. Peter is later going to write uh, similar things. In 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 9, here's what Peter writes. And it's no surprise that there are so many echoes of the Sermon on the Mount in this passage because Peter was there. Peter was there when he heard Jesus say these things, and while it took him a while to understand it, by the time he's writing here, he understands the significance of the Jesus way of being in the world. And so he writes, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against the soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Does that sound familiar? What Peter says here is, listen, to those who are these early new Christians, you are a chosen nature, a chosen nation, a royal priesthood. You're set aside as God's people. It used to be Israel's job to be the, to, to be the people that existed in God's presence who then became the embodiment of God to the world so the world could look at Israel and say, oh, if God is with you, then you're his people, and that's what this, this kingdom of God is all about. Peter is saying that's not Israel's job anymore. It still is, but it's now grown to include all of those who are in Jesus Christ. You now are a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation. And it's all different ways of saying you're supposed to be different than the world. You're supposed to be transformed. You used to be without mercy and in darkness, and now you are in mercy and in the light. You're changed. So if you're sitting here today and you've been baptized into Jesus Christ and you said, I'm a disciple of Jesus, you've been changed today from who you used to be. So now what do you do as a result of being changed? You live as strangers, as weirdos, as different ones in the world. You live in such a way that the world looks at you and goes, huh, you're different than us. And we say, yeah, we are. And there's that temptation to be judgmental of the world, but that's not here in this text. There's that temptation to go into the fortress and withdraw from the world. But, but this text says you must live among the people who are not believers. And you live among them in such a way of, of God's transformed goodness, of being people of mercy and people of light, that the darkness will, will be pushed back as a result of the way that we live in the world. And the more that we're able to do that, the more an unbelieving world will come to give glory to God on the day he visits us. An echo of Jesus' own sentiments that our good deeds that make us salt and light, that Peter talks about us becoming a light in the world, that we come out of darkness, that the world will see us, and that as a result of that, the world will glorify God on the day he, he visits us. So we've talked about Jesus, and we've talked about Peter, and we're going to talk now about John. First John chapter 2, uh, John writes, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one. You've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing, and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light. There's nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Skip down a couple of verses and John continues, Do not love the world or anything in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. John says, listen, the world is temporary, and if you love it, you're going to be temporary. The Father is eternal, and if you love the Father, you will be eternal. Pick sides. But it's more than just choosing sides. So often we think that it's just about saying, I believe in Jesus, I'm on team Jesus, I'm in. And John says, well, there's a little more to it than that. What do you mean? Well, if, if you hate your brother or your sister, the darkness has blinded you and you're no longer living in the light. You're walking around as someone who used to be in the light, but now has allowed hatred to come through and to blind you so that you are no longer able to see the light that you've been called to live according to. And I look at the church today, and I mean the church, I don't mean this room. There's a lot of love in this room. There's a lot of acceptance and inclusion, a lot of people that, that go out of their way to love people today. But when I look at how people who claim the name of Jesus in our world today get out there and live among the world, I see a lot of hatred, a lot of anger, a lot of, uh, of saying those people and sounding like you have contempt and dislike for them. And some of the people that we dislike claim the name of Jesus. There are brothers and sisters and we have hatred for them. And what John tells us is, is, listen, you're called to be the light in the world and to live in this different way. And if you're consumed with hatred, you've lost that light and you're now blinded by the darkness. There's nothing in you uh, that's good anymore. And you've got to get rid of that hate to get back into the light and become part of who God wants you to be. You cannot claim to be in Christ and hate your brother or your sister. And he goes on and he starts talking about the difference of loving God versus loving the world. And he says, listen, if you love the world, you're going to be falling prey to, to several different temptations. The lust of the flesh and the pursuit of all that brings bodily pleasure. Everything from uh, sex outside of marriage to eating your feelings or drinking your troubles away. If you go and just chase what feels good to your body, you're chasing the lust of the flesh and the things of this world and not the love of the Father. If you are someone who pursues the lust of the eyes, the constant casting of your eyes on that which you shouldn't desire, on that... Uh, which is not yours. Uh, the lust of the eyes is looking at something or somebody that doesn't belong to you in a way that through the actions of your eyes tries to make them yours. You desire and you look upon them and you want them and you want that thing which you don't have. And so whether it's jealousy or coveting or, or greed, it comes in all of these different forms, the lust of the eyes. It's a desire to, to constantly pursue material wealth or personal beauty, uh, whether it's yours or someone else's, as the source of your identity and satisfaction. You can love that instead of loving the Father. Or the pride of life. You spend more of your life finding ways to get people to wash your feet instead of finding ways for you to wash theirs. Exactly. You've fallen prey to this. 
You become a victim of the desire to increase your pride, your honor, your influence in the world. And you're doing so uh, in, in a way that Jesus doesn't model, Jesus doesn't ever demonstrate. Over and over again, Jesus rejects honor and power and authority and pursues service and humility and compassion. And he says, this is what it means to be in my kingdom. And if you're going to be my people, you're going to live this way too. Stop loving the world. The reason is simple. If you love the world, you will pass away with it. But if you love the Father, you will live with the Father for eternity. Paul thinks about some of these similar ideas about being the presence of God and how we exist in the world. And, and all of these passages are, are suggesting that for those who are in Jesus Christ, there is a way of being in the world that is beneficial to us and is beneficial to the world. And there are ways of, of being in Christ that are harmful to us and harmful to the world. And so one of the things that Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, he's writing to them where there's a case of sexual immorality that involves some level of incest. And, and I don't want to get into that whole story, but, but Paul, at the end of that conversation about uh, sexual immorality, says this, I wrote to you in my letter, this is 1 Corinthians 5, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or, and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Here's Paul's advice when there's sexual immorality in the church. He says to the church, listen, if the Holy Spirit is in you and among you as a body of believers, here's what you do as a church. You draw a circle around your church. And Paul says, you worry about the holiness and the morality and the actions of the people in that circle. God will take care of the rest. But God, there's some really gross things going on there. Peter says, I lived in Rome. I get it. There was gross stuff going on in Rome. And Peter doesn't say, Peter, go fix Rome. He says, listen, this is Paul. I left my Bible in Peter and I went to my sermon notes in Paul. He doesn't say to Paul. And Paul lived in Rome. He was a Roman citizen. He lived in, with a foot in the world of Rome and a foot in the world of Israel and the church. The, the, and he does all of this. And he knows that all of this is difficult. And he says, listen, here's the thing. The church has to focus on what's in the church and not worry about what's in the world. And if you do that, you're going to be okay. And he says, I, I told you in my last letter that you needed to stay away from sexually immoral people and sinners and all the people that have all this gross stuff in the world. I didn't mean your neighbors who aren't Christians. I didn't mean them. If that's what I meant, there is so much sexual immorality in the world, you would have to leave planet Earth. And this is back when that wasn't actually an option. We can actually do that. You can buy a ticket out of planet Earth today. Paul, was, Paul didn't know we, we would be able to do that. If, if he did, he would have come up with another expression to say it's not possible to get away from the sexual immor sexually immoral and, and swindlers and idolaters and drunkards in the world. That's not the point of this. 
Peter said it earlier, live among the pagans in such a way. Paul says it this way, you got to live among the world, but that doesn't mean that you assimilate or you transform or you judge the world. What you do is you just become a transformed transformer. If the presence of God is in you, you start to become the presence of God among these people. Now worry about what's in your circle, yourself. And now he expands this to include your church. So there's a different way of us behaving when we're in the church and holding one another accountable to different moral teachings that God gives us than there is in the world. We're not supposed to be judgmental in the world and, and, and ignoring the problems in our circle. We're supposed to be worrying and holding accountable those in the circle and letting God take care of the world. Does that mean we just withdraw? No. We live among the world, but not being combative with it, not being judgmental of it, not assimilating with it. Instead, living in the world in a way that we become the presence of God, in a way that we live such good lives and share with our faith and give reason for our hope to anyone who asks it, that we live in that way so that the world might give glory to God on the day he returns. Another way to say, this is Kent's revised here, but I think another way to think about and to say what Paul suggests here in 1 Corinthians 5 is this. Why aren't you offended when your brothers and sisters in Christ are behaving like they are living in darkness and are like the world? Because you should be. You should be bothered when the church says that evil is good and good is evil. You've got a problem. And Why are you so offended and surprised when the world behaves like the world or when the darkness behaves like the darkness? Why does that surprise us? And we're still surprised. We are still surprised today when the world is dark and the church should be light. But we let the church misbehave and we don't hold it accountable. We let the world misbehave and we yell at it and judge it all the time. And we try and go to combat to fix it. Because we're going to baptize this world, pull it up and say, you're welcome. But the New Testament's giving this different way of living and becoming this transformational presence in the world. We need to worry about what's in our circle and be the presence of God and let God take care of the rest. I want to get real for a second about the implications of this kind of living. There's some people in the world that believe that there is, again, I wrote this prior to yesterday, okay? But there's some people in this world that think that there's a company in Florida, it's a real big company, you've probably heard of it. Um, They've got a mouse that's kind of their spokesman. There's some people that think that that company is in charge of teaching Christian values to children. And there's some of you that think, man, 20 years ago they did a pretty good job of that and today they're doing a bad job. And there's some of you that think that they used to be doing a bad job but they're doing better now than they used to be. To either side of that, What I would suggest to you is that you shouldn't expect a company that is firmly anchored in the world. It is not the church to be responsible for teaching Christian values to your children. We get all mad and we get irate and we say, listen, the world is behaving like the world and it's making us mad and it's doing it in front of our kids. Of course it is. 
Why do you expect the world to behave like the church? What is in darkness is not the light. What is in light should be pushing against the darkness. You should not be surprised that companies don't behave like the church. When did we become comfortable or uncomfortable with our decision to outsource my God-given job as a parent to teach my kids biblical Christian values? It's my job to teach my kids. It's your job as my church to help teach my kids biblical Christian values. It's not the heirs of Walt whose job it is to teach my children Christian values. I need people that are in light, that are in my circle, behaving the way that they should behave. People that are out of my circle, God's going to take care of it. He's pretty good at being in charge of everything. It's not my job to fix a company in another state trying to do things that don't match my Christian values. I shouldn't be surprised by that. Some in this room that think the government had things right on abortion laws a year ago. There's some in this room that think our country is getting things more right on abortion laws today and in the months to come. It's hard to get people that care about that a lot to love each other. What if I told you I could get all of the people from both extremes of that to agree on something about abortion in 30 seconds? I'm going to try, okay? The first thing that you've got to do is you've got to forget about the dumbest and worst arguments of the people who disagree with you. Okay, so take the dumbest and worst version of your opponent's argument off the table for just a second and listen with curiosity and empathy to the the real heart of what they're talking about. But the second thing you need to do is, is not get caught up in the argument, but we all need to agree that when a woman or a family is considering having an abortion, There is already brokenness, pain, hurt, and struggle going on in that person's life. That's just part of it. There is brokenness and pain in the life of a family that is considering that. And can we agree that in a family that has made that choice for whatever reasons of brokenness and pain and suffering got them to that moment where they made that choice, that as a result of of an abortion, that that family goes through brokenness, pain, suffering, and struggle and grief? In this country, from now on, who has power in each state or at the federal level will determine the laws on this issue in our country. It's going to be contested, and it's going to go back and forth, and the laws will at times be in favor of it and at times will be against it. But it doesn't matter if our government has laws that support it or our laws that restrict it. There is no law that will help with the brokenness and suffering pain that are before and after a family goes through that decision. The laws can't fix the brokenness. But the presence of God can. So we can try and use all the power we want to make the world look like what God wants it to do. And that doesn't matter if we don't become the presence of God in the world and the lives of people that are struggling with hurt and pain and brokenness. That's what we're called to do as Christians. And so, listen, we've got to love people. 
We've got to be the light when the darkness of the world is pushing against all of the things that are going on in, in the world. And it's an election year. I don't know if you knew this. Maybe you've seen it on the news. It's an election year. Every election year in this country, we become convinced that if we elect the right people, our country will look like God wants it to. And every day, we are shocked and appalled when our elected officials behave more like the darkness and less like the light. Let me tell you this. The New Testament gives us some criteria for choosing uh, how, to, how to choose leaders who are qualified to be leaders in the church. Here's some of them up on the screen. You can read it. You've heard them before. Uh, faithful to your spouse, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, and on and on and on. It's a really good list. These are the kinds of things you should ask your leaders to do. Do you know what the qualifications are for United States government leadership? You have to be old enough and receive at least one vote more than the next option. That's it. That's how you become a leader in the United States government. Why do we expect that the world should look like the church? Why do we expect that, that God would use government to do what he wants the church to do? And the echoes of Paul's question have to continue coming down. Why aren't you offended when your brothers and sisters in Christ are behaving like they're living in darkness and are like the world? That question we need to ask. And the other question is this. Why are you so offended and surprised when the world behaves like the world or when the darkness behaves like the darkness? It shouldn't surprise us that government fails us. It's not the church. When we want elected officials to fill a God-shaped hole in our lives or in this country, you need to know right now, they are always, always, always going to fail to fill a God-sized hole in our lives and in the world. They're not big enough to fill a God-shaped hole in our world. It's not in their job description. You know who does have it in their job description to fill a God-sized hole in our world? God. And you know who he has made his ambassadors to be in this world and to do that work on his behalf? His spirit-filled people. It's us. So we need to look at what's in the circle. Because if we can start getting what's in the circle oriented around becoming the presence of God in the world, we can start filling the holes that, that other sources in our world are completely incapable of filling. If we are the presence of God in the world, then we need to join hands with God and try and actually be salt and light so the world will glorify God on the day he returns. To live such good lives among the pagans that they will give glory to God. Not lives that are withdrawn and in our fortress. Not lives that are disinterested and distracted. Not lives that are assimilating. Not lives that are combative. But being people that receive the presence of God and then live it forward. That we can then begin to love one another and be the instruments not of hatred and darkness. So that we will not love this world and perish with it, but people of light and compassion and mercy and goodness that love the Father and live forever. Here's the last thing, and I'm, I'll wrap this up. And it, it, it ends with to be continued in an invitation song. But here's what you need to know. If you go to lunch or you drive home today and you say to whoever's there with you at lunch, Man, I hope the people that heard that sermon today, 
I hope the people that needed to hear that sermon today really heard it. If that's what you say, then you need to know that they didn't. Because I need to hear this sermon. With those with ears to hear, hear the word of the Lord. I'm out of time. I'm over time. We're going to pick up here next week talking about what then does it mean to be the presence of God in the the church? What does it mean to be the presence of God in our homes? What does it mean to be the presence of God in, in the world? Because it's different. You can be different and inconsistent and intentionally behaving in different ways in a different context, in missional ways. And so we're going to be talking about what that looks like and what that means to be people of integrity that function differently in different spaces. If you need to respond this morning, come forward as we stand and sing.